Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Shane Trotter to talk about his book, Setting the Bar, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Era of Distraction, Dependency, and Entitlement. Shane is a writer, educator, and high school strength and conditioning coordinator who has a passion for research on education and on how we can challenge kids to be their best selves and live their best lives. We often talk about values on the show and how to impart values to your children and live in a family that's based in a strong set of values. But Shane's going to talk a little bit about how there can be good values and bad values and what the difference is. We're also going to look at bullying and why the way that we often respond to bullying and the anti-bullying mentality that a lot of adults adopt actually can often make bullying worse and what some of the research suggests about that. And we're going to get into learning disabilities and how the individualized education plans we put together to help students with learning disabilities can be beneficial, but also can be a double-edged sword. In general, we're going to be talking about how we often as adults are encouraged or feel the need to lower our standards for children rather than setting the bar at a high level. We're going to see all different kinds of ways this manifests and how we can start setting the bar higher. All that and more is coming up today. Shane, thank you so much for being on the show with us. I just finished reading your book, Setting the Bar, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Era of Distraction, Dependency, and Entitlement. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this? Um, what, what, Where did this topic come from? And clearly, this is something you've been thinking about a lot, and that's close to your heart. So what led to you writing it all down? Uh, yeah, so I am... Uh teacher or was a teacher. Now I'm in the same school that I taught at uh, and I've worked into a different role as the strength and conditioning coordinator. And so I've been been here for over a decade now, I'm 32. And it was just this feeling that hit me in the gut over and over again, where it is it, this overwhelming sense uh, that the norms that our kids are taking on are setting them up for failure. And more than that, that we are not preparing our kids to thrive in this world, uh, that that they were being set up for failure. And so, you know, particularly, I started writing the book before I adopted my two kids. But, you know, now with a almost five-year-old and a three-year-old, it became more and more prescient. It, we have to adapt. Uh, the, you know, we have to start addressing these, these failing norms and uh, giving a better model of how to live, how to thrive. Uh, than, than what we're putting forward. Can you talk a little bit about those failing norms? 
what are those? What does that look like? Sure. So you know, I, I start the book with a, a scene of me riding my bike to work. I ride my bike to, to work every day and uh, passing a, a bus stop of kids uh, going to the high school. We all have memories of ourselves at a, at, you know, at, at a bus stop or most, most people. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it was like, yep. hey, you're there with your friends, you're joking every day, you know, there's kind of this, this natural back and forth, you know, maybe some teasing, maybe, you know, whatever it is, just, you know, but, but you're active, you're engaged, uh, you, you might be huddled up chilly or whatever, depending on the weather, but there's this this kind of connected sense that happens when you are a, a, a teenager at you know, riding the bus or totally. young adults. And what I'm seeing is the exact opposite of that. The, you know, no one's standing. They're all sitting. It's like seven right. kids sitting on the curb, you know, head tilted, you know, basically <laughs> as they scroll through their phones, completely disconnected. Yeah. And it's just like, it's like right. kicked in the face, like it's the Wally dystopia, you know, it's like, whoa, 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 you know, this is, this is not how humans are meant to live. This is not, yeah. <laughs> this is not right. The technology is, is certainly, I don't know if it's the sole source of the issue. Uh, it, it may be, and it's certainly a tremendous exacerbating factor. There's a, 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 a phrase, the medium is the message. And so clearly it's uh, our technology has affected how we, uh, the, the way we perceive the world, the, the way our news is being funneled to us, uh, you know, and it, the, the millions of messages we're seeing each day, uh, the, you know, all the marketing and everything, you know, changes us at a very deep level uh, into our subconscious that, you know, our expectations of the world are where we look for, you know, for meaning, all these things. So, so certainly the technological norms, I think, are, are untenable. And those are, those are happening, you know, not just for our kids, but for, for our parents as well. The, the way email has crept into every, you know, email, which was supposed to make, make uh, work more seamless, uh, has only just, yeah, yeah. just changed the expectations and made us feel like we have to be available at all times. And, and so there, totally. there's this, uh, you know, our minds are really, really being affected by the world right now. <laughs> Yeah, the, the norms uh, surrounding technology uh, being being uh, the most obvious today, but also I address the, the norms around eating, uh, eating norms that, that have changed significantly since the 1960s, um, family norms, you know, habit norms that go into the, you know, the pace of being a parent today, uh, the, you know, the select ball schedule that, you know, the, the, or, or whatever it is, maybe, you know, the, the music teacher, whatever, but we're, we're just funneling kids all the time. So it's kind of pushed us towards the convenient convenience food life. And there's this lack of family ritual at home uh, that, you know, this lack of, of coming around a dinner table at night. And then of course, after that, you know, we, rather than congregating in any sense, there tends to be a falling into our own individual screens. So, um, yeah. You know, we're seeing a disconnection in society broadly. You talked about a really some interesting research in your book, because I've heard before about the uh, the studies with the rats. Uh, you know, rats will just like if there's cocaine in their cage or something, they'll just like keep taking it uh, or morphine or something over and over and over again until they basically put themselves into a coma or kill themselves or something like that. But uh, actually, you kind of talk about some interesting caveats or follow up studies to that, that 
sort of add a really interesting dynamic to those findings. Yeah, yeah. So the basic paradigm we've all you know accepted is that uh, it's basically like a linear equation. You know, these are hyper addictive drugs, um, like our phones. Totally. Yeah. So so once once you pop, the fun don't stop. Right. Once you have a taste, you're addicted, and you're going to go back to Can't it. Can't do just one. Yeah, until right. you OD, until you OD. Um, but what Dr. Bruce Alexander, uh, he, he looked at it, and he's like, well, let's wait a second. These these rats are, uh, they're social beings. They're social species, just like humans. You know, humans, you know, we, uh, we find meaning. We find purpose. We find happiness in connection. And rats are the yeah. same way, just, you know, to, maybe to a lesser, less sophisticated degree. So he said, you know, these are all depressed rats we're, we're studying uh, because these rats are just living in cages isolated. Yeah, you take one rat and put it in a little cage all by itself. Well, yeah, of course, it's going to have yeah, some problems. I mean, what, what would you do if you've been living by yourself in a cage forever and someone gave you drugs, <laughs> right? You, yeah. Hey, great. Something to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, so his idea was let's take a bunch of rats uh, and, you know, and compare them to, to these rats, you know, and let's take a bunch of rats and put them in a rat haven. And he created one. He called it Rat Park. There was everything fun for rats to do right there's ton, tons of rats so you know social uh males and females so uh, there was you know, rat babies came along they got to do that there was you know you know the wheel to run on there's stuff to hide behind you know just it was a natural setting you know um yep. you know it was eden so uh then he exposed those rats to the same you know they, they had that the water choice they could have water or water yeah. mixed with morphine cocaine or something to that extent uh it changed from study to yeah. study but uh w w the finding was w that was so overwhelming is none of these rats overdosed in fact uh all of them eventually tried the drug solution and came back to just water and then stuck with just water yeah. they were not interested it's all on a, a you know a non-conscious level obviously with a rat but they that they, they were yeah. not interested in uh drugging themselves into oblivion when they were in a fulfilling environment, which uh, mm. to me is just a, has profound implications when we look at a little background too that is worth noting. Uh, drug overdoses had never exceeded twenty thousand in a year prior to the year two thousand. So prior to the year two thousand, we'd never seen over twenty thousand drug overdoses in the U.S. in a year. And interesting. Okay. And we are uh, we're above seventy thousand uh, in the past year. Uh, so yes, we're seeing this a dramatic increase of drug in drug overdoses. Um, wow! And you know, of course, you know, skyrocketing depression, anxiety, uh, suicide rates in, uh, at all age levels um, have gone up. So, yeah. so I think the the implications from the the Rat Park study are are pretty profound, uh, in that we're seeing this yeah. kind of crisis of meaning, crisis of connection uh going on and and i think that is the the underlying issue right now you know thoreau said uh said many many are hacking at uh at the branches uh of evil uh but few are striking at the roots or some something to that effect so if you know if we're going to strike mm. at the roots you know the this is the roots of our issue and um i think there are so many ways in which we we put teenagers in the little cage so we don't put them in the rat eden you know yeah. um and so many aspects of teenage life really are 
not fulfilling and um, we're not putting them in a situation where they're going to thrive and feel purpose and connection and excitement. And what, what do we expect? We're making them stressed out and bored and um, just forced to do things that they don't want to do all day. And then we wonder why they want to use various drugs and devices and and, uh, risky behaviors to find something exciting or distract themselves from the monotony of life. And um, I think a lot, a lot of ways, social media is a drug of choice for our our current generations. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly, uh, it has had kind of a narcotic effect, hasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And and it's, uh, it's, it it does kind of the same, same thing. Uh, So, you know, and you could say that, that, that the social media is, is making, is, is incentivizing kids to put themselves in their own little rat park, go to their room and scroll, um, you know, lay on the bed and scroll, kind of a typical teenage behavior to, to spend hours that way. Um, but the flip yeah. side is that of that is that they are, they could, it could also be the other way in too, that in the absence of all this meaning, that is more attractive. I think it's a, a two-way street and it works both ways. Um, but in the absence totally. of meaning and in the absence of all these things, yeah, they're using it as the drug. So I thought this was really interesting. Uh, We talk a lot about values on the show and how to instill good values in teenagers and um, have have strong values as a family. And you talk about some ideas from Mark Manson um, and the possibility that there's good values and not as good values or strong values and not so strong values. And um, I really thought this was interesting it could be helpful for people to think about how we can sort of examine our values and how we can develop values that uh, are more reality-based, socially constructive, immediate, and controllable, as opposed to the opposite. Can you talk a little bit about what what makes good values? Yes, absolutely. Values are kind of uh, an obsession of mine, so I'm glad you asked that. the the idea being that that good values should be reality based, socially constructive, uh, realistic, they, and they should be uh, determined uh, under your own control, because you, you can't control whether people like you or not. Yeah. Uh, but you can inc- control whether you have a code of integrity, an honor code, an idea of who, uh, of what you think is right and wrong, and whether you adhere to that. So you can always meet that expectation. These principles, you know, reality-based, this is the pursuit of truth in general and trying to live an authentic life uh, and, and, you know, accepting hard yeah. truths, you know, which I, I think is fundamental to maturity, um, you know, being able to have constructive feedback. So a lot of this is also rooted in basic maturity and the wisdom that tends to be practiced in almost every great civilization throughout time. You can go to, to Taoism, you can go to Buddhism, you can go to Stoicism, you can go to the, the cardinal virtues of Christianity. There, there, there are these universals that aren't restrictive to a, any specific religion or anything that civilizations have kind of come to. Totally, yeah. 
It, and so I talk also in chapter three about cognitive behavior therapy. And I see a lot of, of overlap between uh, values and cognitive behavior therapy, which, you know, the reality-based ideas, you know, cognitive behavior therapy is, is very interested in breaking down kind of this emotional view and helping you to come to a mature lens on the world to accept where you're wrong and to grow your maturity. And again, the, you know, socially constructive being, being such a key idea too. Um, the ability, I think the ability to, to, to have deeper meaning, one of the things that are so lacking for our teens today is that um, they grew up in a very individualistic world. It's a hyper-individualistic world, and it has right. been since, uh, especially so since, since the marketing revolution after World War II. And, uh, you know, it, that is wonderful and that we are comfortable and things are you know, safer than they've ever been. They're convenient, but there's a downside to this too. That you know, it, if if uh, if we're telling kids that there is no right or wrong outside of your own mind, if we're raising you know kids in a consumerist environment where uh, they're always pushed to to do what is comfortable in the moment, and there's there's a uh, there's always all these messages telling them they need this, need that. The drive of their life is basically just to serve their own wants, and there's no idea of something worth sacrificing for, an ideal worth sacrificing for, uh, a, an obligation to community, yeah. or, or that their behavior should be socially constructive, should be, ha- have a benefit on the world, then they will lack meaning. Uh, so, so good values are socially constructive. They add something to the world. And as any parent knows, once you start to make sacrifices for something bigger than yourselves, like a kid, uh, you you become happier than you've ever been. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa this is, yeah. you know, why does anyone become a parent? You know, it makes no sense if you just look at like what it's going to do to your life. Let me just give lose. up my freedom, take a yeah. bunch of money and just throw it at this <laughs> thing. Throw it away. Lose <laughs> <laughs> right. all sorts of sleep. <laughs> but somehow we're happier for it, right? So it's, uh, it, you know, I think that's kind of a microcosm for, for what good values are. And so many... Um, so many parents, we feel like, um, well, I just want my kids to be happy, you know, and that's the, that's the be all end all is like, what do I really want? I just want them to be happy. Um, but that isn't necessarily the, the message to send because if we just try and do things that make us happy, um, then we paradoxically kind of miss out on a lot of, more deeper types of happiness and um yeah it's it's um so my whole chapter five really is is trying to clarify this idea but yeah it's it's that um happiness it's it depends on how you define happiness and we need a much more mature concept of what happiness is Uh, i think what the research tends to bear out and what what you know ancient wisdom tends to bear out is that you know the the greatest happiness uh comes in uh, self-actualization, what the psychologist Abraham Laswell called self-actualization. And uh, the greatest yeah. happiness comes from from becoming something greater, from having an ideal and becoming more yourself and approaching your potential as a human uh, being to, to be a better human, uh, becoming more capable, uh, more admirable, more, you know, to become more yourself. So rather than a cumulative uh, adding up of pleasure and subtracting of pain, uh, real happiness is a lot more sophisticated than that.
you talk about some interesting research in here um, about a lot of parents, you know, talk about screen time and what's, how do I handle screen time? Should I limit screen time? But um, that actually we need to look a little bit deeper um, in terms of not just necessarily just screen time of all types of screens, but just looking specifically at smartphones uh, is different than video games or other types of screen time. And it's different even between how it is used and how it affects boys yeah. versus girls. Yeah, that that was that was really interesting research uh, done by um, Dr. Jean Twingy and uh, Jonathan Haidt. The I think everyone's borne the brunt of social media, but uh, girls have been affected even more. Uh, boys obviously tend to navigate uh, a lot to things like online games, which are community based. They can they can play with their friends. They're talking with their friends. They share missions. They are a somewhat yeah. constructive outlet to some degree i'm not crazy about video games because i i like actual real world physical connection right uh, you know right. and yeah i'd love i'd rather them paintball than uh pretend to uh but <laughs> <laughs> but uh but but still the you're just looking at at a you know acute emotional psychological effects uh that seems to yeah. be far more healthy than than the uh social media which uh which yeah. all kids are attracted to, but but disproportionately, uh, girls uh, have been young. Young women have been, and they, mm. and you can only imagine what that does when you're. First of all, the the amount of uh, advertisement you're being you're being subjected to, and and, and advertisement yeah. is is intentional. We don't have to make it an, an evil thing, but it, we have to understand what it's doing. It's intentionally trying to to plant messages about things you need. And it's intentionally right. trying to manipulate you. I mean, that is the, the the end goal of an advertisement. Right. So it's planting a lot why, of seeds, like tell you why you need stuff to be happy. Yes. Yeah. So it's it, exactly so. So rather than creating a sense in you that you are, uh, you can be happy without things. It's creating a sense that you right. won't be happy until you have things. That's you lack. You need. You lack. Yeah. You, yes. Yes. Exactly. So you know. You know. Do that ten thousand times a day, and it's going to have a psychological effect on you. Um, yeah. And yeah. and then you, you you throw on the filters that he, that that you can do on the pictures, and and you know, and yeah. the the effect of. Uh, of posting comments and and looking for likes and looking for this and it it is it is overwhelming and you know me being a someone who is acutely you know very aware of these 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 effects um it's anyone can fall into this There's also really interesting things in your book about real world bullying and 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 specifically whether it's a good idea to try and get rid of it all. Yeah, <laughs> I think everybody kind of agrees bullying's bad. We don't want people to be bullying each other. Um, but then the, where that kind of leads us to or where we end up with or this idea that uh, as we start to get rid of things we look for ever increasingly smaller instances of it um, and I wonder like how you think parents should respond to bullying or treat bullying yeah so it's all like an onion right so so it goes to to, to deeper philosophy I think has to be uncovered first, but that was interesting research to me, for me to, to to read and learn more about as well. At the end of the day, 
I think that we have to understand that the world is too complex to create a, a perfect enough system to offset every potential risk and harm. Um, that, you know, what we've always known is that the only thing sophisticated enough to handle the complexities of the world is the individual human. So what we should be doing is creating a stronger, more capable human who has the ability to weather the inevitable hardships that will come its way. Uh, and, 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 you know, perhaps even thrive because of them, uh, which is often the yeah. case in the most successful people. All those hardships are what revealed a stronger, you know, individual capability in them and, and that opened the door to all their greatest accomplishments and happiness. You know, so that's that I think that understanding is fundamental with that. Uh, the other background is, is yes, the blue dot study, uh, as I refer to it uh, in the book, yeah. perhaps the most important thing for people to understand about human nature that in the modern world, uh, and it's, it's, they put people in a, in front of a computer screen. And, you know, they were shown a succession of dots. And they were tasked with deciding whether a dot was blue, or not blue. Okay, and, and okay. the dots yeah. range from blue to purple. All right, and, and they're honest. Yeah, right. right. And so they they saw they saw a thousand, and the within the first hundred, they uh, were had about a 50-50 split between actually blue, you know, technically blue blues, and technically purple purples. Okay. But as they got towards a thousand, more and more were purple. And yet they found just as many blues. It, it still ended up 50. So by the end of it, the last hundred were almost all purples. And they're still coming up with about a 50-50 blue to purple split. And this is done in trial after trial. They found the, the same with, uh, with uh, faces. Do people look, uh, you know, uh, mean or not mean, basically, you know, and they go through okay, that. Yeah. Um, and the same thing, as you find more and more nice faces, people still find just as many yeah. means because they're set up yeah, behind right. us. And the same thing they found with unethical business proposals. If there are, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, if they're looking for unethical business proposals and the number of unethical business proposals goes down, people find just as many. This is yeah. super, super important for understanding the human psychology they call it the, the technical term is prevalence induced concept change but it's that when the signal you're looking for is reduced you don't necessarily find less of it uh you you change your definition so you're finding just yeah yeah much. yeah so you know apply yeah. that to the modern world you know where uh, our idea of trauma has uh has broadened uh, our expectations about how comfortable we should be uh, our idea is, you know, just of, of hardship in general. Mark Manson, he's argued that our brain naturally seeks problems. Uh, uh, it, right. It's a problem-seeking mechanism. Really, our meaning is that it comes from having better problems. You know, if you if you feel a sense of purpose, then you feel that there's a problem you're excited to solve, right? Um, yeah. You know, something you care about and care about doing something about. So if we are a problem-seeking organism a pain-seeking organism, you know, natural pains in our life are reduced, we're going to find just as many pains. We're here today with Shane Trotter talking about how we often end up 
failing to properly challenge kids. And we're looking at how we can set the bar higher. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. You know, if you're reading family, you got it made. In books, there's just so much fodder for deeper living. All the incentives are bringing teachers' attention to the least successful because they got to get the passing rates up. They got to get, you know, make sure that the graduation rates are higher. Um, totally. And, and to the students with disabilities, sometimes there are, you know, anywhere from 15% to as much, as much as almost 50% of a classroom with some sort of 504 yeah. uh, or individualized education plan, something to that effect. Wow. And so yeah. the, people don't understand how much work that is to individualize for that many students so teachers knowing that they they you know trying and then realizing they can't keep everything straight just bring the level on everyone down when adults are always issuing verdicts you know often the kid who's dubbed as a bully uh you know there is clear-cut bullying behavior that's far less common today Far less common. Yeah, look at the right. research. So I mean, most of it tends to be kind of squabbling. It's 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 a uh, cyberbullying is a real thing. You know, the internet kind of encourages behavior you'd never do in real life. So, Depersonalization. Yes, exactly. But the the triangulation effect is that it, you know w- when a teacher or or adult comes in to issue the verdict, you know whoever is dubbed the bully or feels dubbed the bully often feels that that's been done wrongly. Yeah. So, so now there is, right. you know, that, that relationship between the adult and himself or herself is broken a little bit. And, you know, and if this is in a school setting, it creates some negative feelings there about school perhaps, yeah. right. but also tends to, to lead to a vindictive response. Yep. And what they've seen is that the kids who seek help the most tend to be bullied the most, uh, which is, you yeah. know, or, or, you know, maybe not, maybe it isn't bullied, but, have the most issues, right? right. Basically, we're, we're, we're not equipping our, our kids to be self-reliant. Uh, and in the process, we're crippling them by handling their issues for them. We're crippling their ability to handle them for themselves. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable and Your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.